off the Reformation, if, uh, and at the end of his life, he was reflecting on everything that had happened, and in typical Luther fashion, he said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word, otherwise I did nothing. And while I slept and drank beer with my friends Philip, yeah, yeah, drank with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word of God so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did everything. Every January, I like to take four weeks emphasizing four different topics. This week's scripture. Uh, next week, Ethnic Harmony on MLK Weekend, then Right to Life Sunday, and then Prayer, and then we'll get into the book of Revelation after that. Now, the Bible talks a lot about itself. It kind of loves itself, and it talks about itself in terms of power. For example, Jeremiah 23, 29, is not my word like fire, like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Have you ever been uh, near a fire that is out of control, that is not in your solo stove or in your you know, little campground area, but that is out of control. That is an experience of power. That is an experience of fright. Or one of my favorites, Hebrews 4.12, is for the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even the dividing soul and spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Do you, do you hear the power there? I, I, I think of the Bible often as a sword without handles, you know? Like, if you're going to pick it up and poke someone with it, it's going to get you. And sometimes you know what this is like, where you open the Bible and you want to close it because it hurts. Or you want to close it because you're like, I don't really like this part. But being stabbed is healing. And this year, as we think about scripture, I want to go to Nehemiah chapter 8. Now, Nehemiah is, a, is one of my favorite narrative scenes in all of scripture. So the Israelites have been exiled by God. Now, some of the Jews have returned from the Babylonian captivity. They're rebuilding Jerusalem. Nehemiah is back in Babylon, and he hears what's going on, and he hears the cities in disrepair. He hears the walls are in disrepair, and he prays, and he fasts, and he's burdened. And King Artaxerxes sees him and says, what, what's wrong with you? What do you need to do? And so he says, my, my home is in ruin. And so Artaxerxes gives Nehemiah the resources to go back to Jerusalem and fix it. He gets there. He assigns families to do certain things. This is chapter 4. Things are going rather smoothly. And then they begin to have external pressures because people don't like that it's being built. They overcome that, and then that's not enough. Now they have internal pressures, and the rich start taking advantage of the poor as Nehemiah is trying to rebuild this wall. So eventually the wall gets rebuilt, and you would think, okay, celebration time. But it's not celebration time. It comes in chapters 12, comes in chapters 12 because now Nehemiah knows that this isn't just about building a wall. In fact, if you have uh, been in a church and they need a building project, what book are they preaching? Nehemiah, right? Because it's about building the wall and raising money and smart leadership, whatever. Nehemiah is not about that. Nehemiah is about building people. 
And he stops the building process. I mean, at the end of the building process, he stops and goes, okay, I now need to rebuild these people spiritually. Let's get Ezra. And so that's the scene. And in verse 1 through 7, now to start, we see this huge Bible study breakout. The time of the year is mentioned, which is important, you know. If, if I was up here right now and we were doing American, I mean, I am up here right now. What am I talking about? Uh, and if I was, <laughs> if, 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 oh, how am I going to say this? If I said to you, um, in the seventh month on the fourth day, what would you guys know? You guys would know what that is, right? That, that's, that's the 4th of July. And everyone in the United States would go, that's the 4th of July. And we celebrate on the 4th of July. So there is a date here. And the date is important because these, this is a month of feasts. There is one on the first day of month. Then on the 10th day of the month is the Day of Atonement. And then on the 15th of the month is the Feast of Tabernacles. And the location is mentioned. It's the water gate. This is not in the temple. And this is important because the word of God from here on out, becomes what is central, and the temple gets diminished. Up until this point, temple is central. The word of God is mediated in the temple. Now it's the word of God is central, and the temple is secondary. So, verse 1. All the people came together as one in the square before the water gate. They told Ezra, the teacher of the law, bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded Israel. So we get introduced to Ezra. He's told to bring out the book. This is like every teacher's dream. Like if, if you were going to talk to any teacher on any subject and they said, what is your dream? It's that the students walk into the classroom and go, teach us something. You know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Some of you are teachers and are like, it's happened once in 20 years. <laughs> First you have Ezra. This is the first time we meet him. He's a priest. He's a scribe. And Ezra has one of the most remarkable verses ever said about him in Ezra 7.10. And if Ezra wrote Ezra, wrote Ezra uh, shame on him for talking about himself this way. For Ezra, Ezra 7.10, had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law and to teaching its decrees. You see the order there? He had studied the law. He had practiced the law, and then he taught it. He, that, that's a good order. Like, you don't go, I'm going to study it, teach it, and then practice it as optional. He's not teaching it without studying it. He's studying it, he's practicing it, and he's teaching. In other words, he's the kind of teacher you want to have. He's not going to be the kind of teacher that tells you to do something and then refuses to do it himself. He's eager. He wants to, he wants to do this now in Nehemiah 8. And, you know, there is a kind of Bible teacher that is not like Ezra. It's the kind of teacher who is stingy. Have you, have you ever met a teacher who is not eager to teach? Maybe some of you college students know exactly what I'm talking about. Like, this teacher got assigned this course, and it's all multiple choice, and they're, they're literally doing their notes from the 1970s. They don't care that I'm here. It's a kind of teacher that is mad that people don't know what they know. Ever met this teacher? The person who Paul warns in 1 Corinthians that their knowledge has puffed them up. They lack love. This is the person who judges people harshly for not knowing something they just learned. Do you know the kind of teacher I'm talking about? The person who is mad when someone doesn't know what they have studied. This is the kind of teacher that is essentially happy 
that the other person doesn't know anything but is not actually willing to help them. That is not Ezra. Ezra is ready and he's willing. And so in verse 3, you know, they ask him, bring it out, and he answers. Verse, verse 3, he read it aloud from daybreak till noon as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, the women, and the others who could understand, and all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. Now, for six hours, Ezra reads the Bible. Now, that's not the whole Old Testament. That takes a lot longer, I assume. But he did read parts of it. In verse 5, notice that this, Ezra opened the book. All the people could see him because he was standing there above them and he opened it. The people all stood up. The standing was a sign of respect. It was that body language mattered. And this became the practice in Judaism. And it became the practice in a lot of early Christian circles. And it's a practice today. Why do we stand for the reading of the Bible? Where did that come from in Scripture? It comes from Nehemiah 8. And then it's adopted. It's not commanded to do. But it's, it's a way in which the people just naturally responded to God's words being read. Everybody stand up for six hours. Back to verse 3, they're listening attentively. This is not passive learning. This is not, I have the TV on, I've got my uh, music on. The TV's on, the music's on, and I'm reading the Bible. That's not what's happening here. Someone is reading it, and everyone is listening. And look who's there. Men, women, and others who could understand. Who's that third group? That's kids. Now, parents, think about this. Ezra reads for six hours, and the kids are there. And Ezra wants to note it. This is why we don't shuffle off children to play games when the Bible is being taught. Now, obviously, it's uh, children who can understand. So there is some level of, okay, what is the point in which the children can understand what's going on? We want them here at that point. And so they're there. And this is almost identical to what Moses says in Deuteronomy. Listen to these words. Assemble the people. Hmm, almost identical. Men. Women, children, foreigners residing in your town so they can listen and learn to fear the Lord and follow carefully. You know, being a pastor, uh, I get feedback from you in email form, letter form. If you write it anonymously, it goes in the trash before I read it. But, and most of it's kind. Uh, my daughter said this morning, ooh, you're going to get some emails in the coming weeks with your preaching on. Uh, yeah, revelation, sweetheart. But you know what the best emails I get are? It's that when a parent comes to me and says, my kid understood what you were saying and was gripped. This is an event that is planned. In other words, they take the initiative because in verse 4, notice that they're not waiting around for this to happen. This is a planned event. Ezra, the teacher of the law, stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. In other words, this is not a spiritual revival that everyone just goes, I wonder if God's going to do something. They go, let's build a stage and a pulpit, which Ezra will unroll the scroll. It's not a book, you know, or this way. Unroll the scroll, and he will read it to us on this day for six hours. They wanted to hear God's word. They're eager. So the book of Nehemiah 
is not a book about rebuilding a wall. It is about rebuilding a wall, but it is about rebuilding God's people and God's, the, the assumptions they have, the world they have. They have been in Babylon for generations, and they are now coming back into the land, and some of them do not know what this book says. And so they need to read it out loud. It is a hunger. Now, I've shown you this picture before, uh, and I think about this picture all the time, if they get it on the screen. There it is. Uh, this is a Bible that belonged to an Iranian who was a new Christian trying to learn the Bible. You can see it's worn out a little bit, and it's marked everywhere. Why? They, they've ne they'd never read the Bible in their entire life. And so they were literally marking where everything was so that they could teach it. The, the guy who is in the picture is a teacher, but he's the, he was the longest, uh, he was the most mature Christian because he'd been a Christian for six months. <laughs> and he was teaching the Bible that had been taught to him, and he was flipping through it and all the notes he had made. I just say that because in my experience, the sign, the sign of someone being transformed by God is that they just love this book. Psalm 1, what is a godly man, the one who, and woman, the one who meditates on his law, his word, and meditates on it day and night. Think about what you love to talk about and think about what your emotional response is when someone says, hey, let's talk about the Bible. Do your affections go, oh my gosh, again? Come on, something else. Don't you want to watch? Let's talk about the week. How are your kids? And what's your body language? Like the, these people have come and they're standing for six hours. We, we stand for eight verses and it's like, you know, I, I begin to like go back and forth. I'm like, I don't want to fall. I got to bend the knees a little bit. Six hours. I don't know what that was. So there's a willing teacher. There's eager people. And now look what happens. There's a list of teachers. Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiai, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah. Jezebel, Hanan, Peliah. Good job, Marshall. These are the list of teachers. They're not priests. These are the, this is the first time the lay people are teaching the Bible, I think, in the Old Testament. You get the deprofessionalization of ministry right here. These are Levites, and they fan out. You know, I, I was reading this list, and it just uh, hit me. All the people who had taught me the Bible, like, wh why are they being listed here? They're being listed here to remember these are the men that taught God's people the Bible as this Bible study broke out. And it just made me go through the names of all the people who had taught me the Bible, starting with Scott Davidson, and then Bart Irwin, and then Nate Winters, and then Matt Roberts, and then Don Carson, and then John Piper, and the list goes on. And these aren't people I read. These were people I knew and had shaped me and made me think about the Bible. Do you have those lists of people in your mind? If you don't, you need to go get somebody. And if you do, 
take some time this afternoon and just send them a text and say, thank you. Thank you for teaching me the Bible. I know what it's like to have the Bible grip me where they've made it clear, where they've changed how I think about things. So notice what's happening in the text now. They read it, then they interpret it, and then they expound on it. And that's the word for teachers. You read it, you interpret it, you explain it. You read it, you interpret it, you explain it. Listen, some of you, I, I've done this too. I've been in churches where Bible read, Bible closed. You know what I'm talking about? And then, or it's Bible never opened and everyone gets a little inspiration for the week. And then everyone goes, wasn't that guy so funny? You're like, but what was it about? <laughs> it's a word for me. If you come out of this service this morning and you say, as a whole, not just like one person, maybe you weren't paying attention, but like as the group, and it's, I'm really confused then I have not heeded Ezra's words. Make it clear. Make it understandable. Now, something in verse 8, just here's a little debate internally. You can decide for yourself. And I'm not 100% sure which way to go here. The word make clear in verse 8 means to translate. You see that? They read the book of the law. Some of your translations will say something else. Making it clear. Now, some people say that this is Ezra translating the Bible from Hebrew to Aramaic because that's the language they would think of the people as they come back from Babylon into the land. Like this is lingua franca. This is the language everyone spoke. Maybe. However, 12 years later, Nehemiah comes back in, in the book of Nehemiah and he's mad people don't know Hebrew anymore. And he kind of makes, makes a scene over it. So did they know Hebrew 12 years before? And is that why Nehemiah is mad later in the book? Maybe is it that he's doing it in Aramaic? Because a few years later, the, the Bible, Hebrew Bible does get translated into Aramaic and into Greek so that the Jews who didn't know Hebrew could read it. I don't know. Does it make a world of difference? Maybe. They're making it clear. I don't know if I made anything clear right there, but Ezra made it clear. This book that is alive and active. You know, every revival in history started either as a prayer meeting or a Bible study. And every revival, the play out of it were Bible meetings and Bible meetings and Bible meetings. That is, you knew the revival was on when people showed up for Bible study all the time. Because the word was active. The word was shaping them. People's lives were being changed. Their prayer life was being changed. Their marriages were being changed. Why? Because this book was being read, explained, interpreted. Oop, wrong way. Read, interpreted, explained. Now, part of this is on the teacher, right? If you've been in a church with terrible teachers, any you've ever been in a class with a terrible teacher, and it's made you hate the subject, you know what I'm talking about? I mean, math did it for me, even though it was a terrible subject for me personally. But you have these Bible teachers, they're terrible. And so, of course, people don't like it. But I know what it is like to have a good teacher to personally unfold the Bible. And it's like your focus changes, right? Like, like everything goes out of focus, and then the Bible just comes into sharp focus. And your guard comes down, and the word becomes active, and it's like you're picked up off your seat. 
I, I've had this happen. It's like you're being lifted into some other dimension where the Bible is clear, it makes sense, it's life-giving, and it gives joy. And you're like, why hasn't anyone ever talked to me like this before? Where is this all coming from? I, I hope you've had an experience like that. I, I've had this even as a teacher. I, last year, some, a woman came up to me and said, hey, a few weeks ago you were preaching, and it felt like my heart was being physically changed as you explained the Bible to me. One English reformer, 1495, Put it, put it to this way. See if you can, I'll, I'll kind of hurt the old English here, but I came upon a sentence, 1 Timothy 1. This is a true saying worthy of all who be embraced that Christ Jesus came to save sinners of I am the worst. This one sentence, through God's instruction and inward working, which I did not then perceive, so exhilarated my heart, being wounded by the guilt of sin and almost in despair, immediately I felt comfort. After this, scripture began to be pleasant to me like honey or a honeycomb. The experience of it where you're not just eager, but something happens where they read the Bible and you're like, I actually like this. Now, Nehemiah 8 isn't something that you can do all the time. People have to go back to work. Like, this is a festival. This is like camp Christianity. Everyone is so fired up at camp, and then you come back home, and you're like, what happened? What happened is that you didn't have to work at camp, and you're on vacation. Now you're back, and everything that happened in that festival now has to take root. And, oh, to have this church and all the churches of the valley say, you know what? In the end, the word of God did it. That all our strategies and all of our children's ministry and all of our plans and all of our missions gatherings and all of the counseling and all the strategic plans we're going to lead people to Christ. That, that we had planned, 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 planned. Okay, Nehemiah made plans. He was a political leader. Good. But he brought Ezra in to say, slow down, people. The word of God did it, not the plan. What if you say, like all of us, at one point in your Christian walk, uh, the Bible was written two, 3,000 years ago. It's old, it's outdated, and honestly, there are parts I don't like. First, thanks for your honesty. And two, if you've never said that, you're lying to yourself. Of course you've said that. Let me just offer you two things as before we keep pressing on. One, you might not like it because you just don't understand what it really says. You might be upset because you have a bad understanding of the text. It could be that. It could be that we have, you have cultural blinders to it or time-bound blinders. What I mean is go read the Bible with someone from another country and you find that they're not offended by the things you're offended by. They see things differently. They ask different questions and you're like, why are you not offended and I am? Cultural blinder. It could be time-bound binders. Some, some of you have had this happen to you. Your great-grandchildren will think you're dumb. They will feel like they have to apologize for the way you did things. I promise you. Anyone uncomfortable with the way your great-grandchildren or great-grandparents did certain things? Yes, you feel like, well, it was then and you know. They're going to do it to us. And so we're culturally blind. We're time-bound blind. And then this is the second one now, and this is more important than that. You and I don't get to decide what is good. 
The clay doesn't say to the potter, why did you make me like this? The potter just makes the clay. If you come to the Bible, let me just say, if you come to the Bible and you see a problem, don't assume it's the Bible. Assume it's you. You might find that you look down the microscope at the Bible and that you find God pointing the finger back at you and calling you a sinner. That is, just because you don't like it is not the test whether it's true or not. Can you imagine if what is true based on, is based on what I like? Man, my house would be crazy. Liking something has no bearing on whether this is true. You're just clay. God gets to decide. What's the temptation in Genesis 3? Did God really say? You don't have to like that, Eve. All right. Now, verse 9 through 12, the tension of tears and celebration. This is wild. So verse 9, Ezra and Nehemiah are now together. There are their titles. Nehemiah is the political leader. Ezra is the spiritual leader. And th the people are crying. And the Levites and Ezra and Nehemiah start walking around saying, this is a holy day. Don't mourn or weep. Verse 8, verse 10, this is a sacred day to the Lord. Do not weep or grieve. Verse 11, this is a holy day to the Lord. Do not grieve. So they got to keep saying it. What, what's going on? They're crying. The people have realized how, fall, how short they fall. They're having an emotional response. And you know what? It's, it's not a bad thing. But guess what? It's ill-timed. They shouldn't be crying. And I, as I've thought about this part, I've, it's honestly shaken me a little bit. Because uh, how do I conceive of the Christian life? I conceive it as, as repent confess, joy. Repent, confess, joy. But God is not boxed in by my desired order. Uh, here, it's stop crying. The day is holy. The repentance comes in chapter 9. The people are being led by leaders who are telling them not to cry. So yeah, the spirit can do whatever it wants, but the leaders set the tone, and the leaders are saying, stop crying. Stop repenting. Now, there is, of course, and this is probably the American church, a very flippant kind of Christianity where there is no mourning, there's no repentance, it's all celebration. But do you know what? It seems to me that the people who lament the most that there's not enough lament in churches are also the most unhappy people I know. That they just have this complaint on their lips. Why aren't people sad? They talk about holiness, but they don't seem happy about it. And you know what it is? It is arrogance shrouded in a desire to be serious about God. You know the kind of people I'm talking about. It is to prove to themselves and to others some kind of righteousness, this stiff-lipped Christianity, you know, like, you, why are you so happy over there? Don't you know about sin? And shouldn't you be confessing? Listen, the leaders say in the text, this is a holy day. And because it's a holy day, stop crying. Why so serious? Three of you got that. And they're moved to joy. They're remembering what God has done. And the order is not repent, confess, or what is it? repent, confess, same thing, and have joy, it's joy first. 
There's a strength that comes from delighting in God, right? What does the brother, half-brother of Jesus say in his letter? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. And look at verse 10. The joy of the Lord is your strength. That is not the joy that the Lord has for his people. That's in other places in Scripture. Zephaniah 3, the Lord will rejoice over you with gladness. He's quiet in his love. This is the joy that is given to you because you know him. Do you know that there are 27 different Hebrew words for joy or joyful? Joy is at the center of the experience of knowing God. What does the Apostle Paul say? So in the New Testament, let me summarize. Paul says, I'm going to summarize all of my ministry for you. Here it is, 2 Corinthians 1. We work with you for your joy. Not based on circumstances. You know, there is something about a person who, no matter what the circumstances, they can say, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Now, I'm just going to mention something here. And I was, I was debating whether to mention it in Nehemiah because I don't understand what's going on. That word strength. Now, we sing the song, right? The joy of the Lord, the joy of the Lord, joy of the Lord is my strength. It's, it's in our mind. The problem is that that word that is translated strength, this is the only time in the entire Old Testament it's translated strength. The NIV does it. The ESV does it. And no commentator does it. And I'm not smart enough to fight the linguists about what it should be. But this word almost everywhere else is stronghold. Now think about this. They've just built the wall, which is a what? Stronghold. To protect them from who? The enemies of God's people. And so Ezra then drops that same word and says, the joy of the Lord is your stronghold. It is the place in which you run to for safety. I think it's safer to go that way. Back to the text, verse 12. Then all the people went away to eat and drink, to send portions of food, to celebrate with great joy, because they understood the words that had been made known to them. Here's Nehemiah. They don't just have a meal breakout. They include those who don't have anything. They're sending food out to people to celebrate with great joy because they understood the word. Now, I was personally convicted by verse 12. Here's why. Have you ever had a meal to celebrate something for this one reason? I understood the Bible. Could you imagine gathering your family and saying, listen, family, we're going to have the best drinks, the best appetizers, the best smoked brisket or pasta. My family, you got to have both. I eat meat and everyone else has pasta. The best dessert, the best everything. And then the neighbor comes over to your house. What are you celebrating? That smells amazing. We understood the Bible. <laughs> Ever done it? Ever thought to do it? Ever thought to celebrate the fact that your eyes were open? That This is what's happening here. It was so convicting. I was like... No, I have not. I just want to encourage you. Reading the Bible is great, but it's not a magic book. Just reading it without understanding it doesn't unleash the power of it. Hosea 4.6, my people are destroyed without knowledge. That's not, they, they can't quote it. That's it. They don't understand the implications for what it means for their life. 
Do you understand what you're reading? If not, get a teacher. All right, last one. Celebration leads to action. So verse 13, day two. The heads of the family stick around for some more. And it's worth thinking about this. So the text says, the men gathered around Ezra, the teacher, to give attention to the words of the law. So, okay, the kids can't survive another day. So mom takes the kids home. The dads stay back with the priests and the scribes and Ezra. And they're all gathered around Ezra, giving attention to his teaching. Verse 18, day by day, they have Bible study. So they're not teaching themselves, they're getting help. And so, men, dads, has, have you found that Ezra in your life that you have sat by so that you can then turn around and go home and say, this is what God's word says, this is what we're going to do. This is Deuteronomy 6, right? These commandments I give you today are to press them upon your heart and press them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Who's that for? That's for dads. Of course, not everyone has dads. And so the community of faith obviously comes around those families and those children and help. You, you notice... Uh, in, in this Nehemiah 8, there's no children's ministry director. There's no youth pastor. Sorry, John. Um, if your children come out of your home and they say, we don't know anything, I mean, maybe they're just dumb and they just can't ever learn, okay? But it's mostly a reflection of the dad not teaching them, not teaching them. There's a direct application now. They begin to celebrate, celebrating God's protection. And this is a wild, weird scene. Ezra combines Leviticus 23 and Deuteronomy 16 to do one event. And it just shows you how the Bible uh, has to be applied differently in different situations. Uh, and in verse 17, this is what happens. The whole company had returned from exile. They built, so this is the Festival of Booths. They built temporary shelters and lived in them from the days of Joshua of Nun, son of Nun, until today the Israelites had not celebrated like this. Their joy was very great. Think about what they're being asked to do. They've built a wall that is a stronghold, and now God says, okay, I want you to build flammable tents and live in them and celebrate. And they go, okay, God's word says it. So they built temporary Buildings essentially say, remember what we were. We were people in the wilderness. We were people without a home. And God has given us this home, but life is fragile, and these things can burn down. But we're going to live in them anyway. 